Welcome to episode number seven of Developer Melange, the podcast about developing software in the 21st century directly from Vienna, Austria. Developer Melange brings you regular discussions about everything software development. You can find us online on developermelange.github.io and you can follow us on Twitter via at devmelange. That's dev, M-E-L-A-N-G-E. We are very keen on learning what you think about this show or the podcast itself. So please reach out for us on Twitter or leave your comments on our website. We appreciate all your feedback. And now, here are your hosts. My name is Paul. Hi, I'm David. And my name is Christian. Um, did anybody read the, the, the blog article from, from Dan Abramov? No. This is the, the inventor of Redux. Um, of he, the, the inventor of Redux, the, 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 the state management for, for React, especially for single-page applications. And he wrote a blog post what he doesn't know. This was really interesting. I mean, he's such a famous person, I would say, in this community. And he really knows not too much besides <laughs> React and, and JavaScript. He, he never worked on the backend. He, he, he never did a database connection or something like this. Um, oh. It was really interesting to read this. And it, it made him really touchable, right, for, mm. for, for people outside of this area. Well, that, was, that was one year ago, I believe. I don't know when, how long it's ago, uh, a Twitter trend where because of the, the high um, requirements on, on, on job interviews where people were interviewed for all sorts of things okay. mm. and, and people were reluctant to do that and then started a, a trend on Twitter to say, okay, I'm, I'm developing for this and that years and I don't know how to simple stuff. Yeah, yeah that's, that's really Various people yeah. re responded to that. And 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 yeah. I thought also about setting up. I didn't I didn't make it public yet, but it's it's really really interesting because I mean he didn't write everything down. He doesn't know because it's not possible. Like this would be an infinite list, but at least things he would like to know. He would at least get a rough overview about. He just not into detail, but at least you know worked with it once or played around with it so that he has, has a good feeling. For example, really going down. To, to not that abstract languages where I normally work, really going down with C++, microcontroller development and stuff. That, that's what, for example, would interest me a lot to, to get a little bit better feeling of performance and, and, and usage of, of space and, and things like this. Uh, mm. But the, the, the creating such a list is, is quite interesting. Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> when I started, I also had a post-it on my monitor where I attached things and words that I stumbled across and I thought, I, I ah, should okay. know that, I want to know that, and then I wrote it down. And then the, and it was interesting and the monitor that broke because of The heavy, monitor broke because it was <laughs> such a long list. <laughs> but interesting, I, I did not really got very uh, active about this list, but look, coming back to the list, months later was interesting that some topics really I could skip from the list. Mm. I could mm. st strike through because... Already, I knew something. Mm. It was interesting. Mm. And did you post something? Did you create a tweet when this trend was going on? Me? Yeah. No, no. I, I, I was just only following it. But what would you tweet, for example, as very experienced developers? So what is the the most amazing thing you do not know? I still haven't experience the true implementation of an onion structure application thing. Oh, that's, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> I, I still haven't experienced a true uh, MVC application, mm. model view controller application. 
recently I've been to a training where the, where the trainer talked about MVC and within five minutes, he uh, five seconds, sorry, he wrote this three boxes and the arrows between those three boxes. Okay. And I just thought, oh, I would have think way much longer about the dependencies between MV and C. Really? Yes. I, I think the most interesting thing about MVC is that if you ask people, they always think, for especially, I mean, it's used in web development these yeah. days mainly, right? ASP.NET MVC or Spring MVC. And for them, the view is always the HTML, right? But actually, mm -hmm. that's not really true because the view is the thing that generates the HTML, right? Mainly, it's not that explicit, but in the original MVC, the view was an observable on yeah. the model and just regenerated the view every time the model changed. But in, yeah. in stateless architectures, this doesn't work that well anymore. Mm. But MVC is really interesting, yeah? Because actually, it's unidirectional. Most people think it's somehow bidirectional, but it's mm -hmm. actually it's it's like like Flux or, or Redux. It's, it goes into one direction. Every time you touch the controller, you change the model. The view gets re-rendered, right? Yeah. Then you have again this this round trip. So the the request part is not part of MVC. Well, the, the request part gets hit to the controller. I would say the HTML is not really part of MVC. It's just the output of the view. But but the question: How does a a change come to the model? Over the controller always. Sure, sure, but it's it's not part of of MVC where the Okay, yeah. Well, mainly the output of the view, I would say, right? The output of the view is, is the, the more or less independent from the, from the controller. Uh, yeah, so, for sure, but it, it so would... So if you get a new request or a request to change the state, even if it's not a web application, it, yeah, it has to touch the controller first and then it goes to the model and, mm -hmm. and to the view, yeah. And if you really think about it, then it's it's one of the core benefits is, for example, single um, um, single point of state, right? Mm. And that's also one of the selling points if, if you go to, to React developers, what they think about Redux or especially Flux. Mm. That's quite quite cool. But the, the interesting thing about MVC is also that it comes from a total different area, right? It was I think invented for Smalltalk, mm. where it was all stateful and actually one MVC pattern was introduced for one small control and on the web application it is now introduced for one big view so it's, yeah. it's totally I think it's not really the, the same use case anymore mm. but still people call it MVC and so I think now it's very fussy what MVC really is mm. it's you Paul okay for the first topic actually Kristen proposed to um, start off with a little thread on Twitter that I did recently it started off with um, with tweets with a tweet from Angie Jones. She's at TechGirl1908, and she says, "I often state the non-obvious fact that your automation engineers write more code than your app developers. This is why waiting to write the integration tests after the feature is done is a bottleneck." And then um, John Ferguson Smart replied. He's a guy from from uh, Britain, and he said, uh, and that was the thing that I hooked uh, on was test code also needs to be of equal or higher quality to production code. There are no tests to test the tests, which is why I dislike the term test script. Yeah, and that was the thing where I came in because I think if 
testing code, if, if code that you write to get this testing done becomes more than just a single very thin layer above your API, above your production API, and you start developing a lot of test automation code. And especially if you're doing uh, something like uh, using some Gherkin style tools, for example, a spec flow, and you have to write the bindings and you maybe have a, a driver and then you have some other levels until you come to the real API that you are talking to, that uh, might be a really, um, considerable amount of code that you have to maintain that is not production code and it is not the top level test that you are reading when you think about the test. So there is, in my understanding, there is the test. So that's the thing, single method that you are writing and reasoning about from the business perspective of the feature. So you're thinking about what is the thing that I want to set up and what's the thing I want to test and what is the, how can I observe it it's good or not good. And that's the, f the first level that you're reading. And then on the other side, there is the API, the production code against that you want to run this. And in between, there might be a non-zero uh, level uh, of test automation code. And for that test automation code, it might be really beneficial to write tests for this test automation code. So of course, you won't have a test for this very top level for the test itself. But it could be a thing to think about if the test automation layer is considerably large to test something what you're doing here, because it can be really a lot of stuff that is going on here. Mm -hmm. Of course, not if it's a classical and unit, unit yeah, test, sure. you won't have it. But if you are more on the integrated uh, testing style, uh, for some things, then you might have a really considerable amount of code. And that could be really a good idea to test it. And that was the question that I want to bring to the table. What are your experiences about the, the amount of code that you write to make testing possible and about the feeling about the quality of this code? Mm. What do you think? What are your experiences? What are your measures to keep the quality of this test automation code good? And maybe a second part related to this, what about larger um, refactorings of tests, of test automation code? Mm -hmm. How confident are you with this, if you do this? And Paul, was this now a new thought for you, um, making tests for the test infrastructure? No, no, absolutely not. I often have the feeling it's the other way around, that people don't think about testing their test automation code. And, and I have been to a few places where I really felt the urge to do it. Mm, because I saw how much code it was and how difficult it was. It got over time and how less confident I was about if I change something, does the code still mm. find a bug in production? Yeah. But I mean, I read your discussion and there are two really very interesting points for me people brought up. I guess also one of them was brought up by you. The first one is that tests need to be crafted very good because they don't have tests, which is actually quite, quite nice saying in my opinion, even if we of course can test the tests. But I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not the normal case, right? I would say. 
and and this is a good argument why why tests should be crafted with the yeah. same yeah. Uh, with the same love than, than production code. And the the second very interesting point was um, I think this was the start of the discussion that the the test code is is way huger or way more lines of code than the application code, which is also interesting, right? Because I mean, there's one thing which is more or less clear. I think there's not too much discussion on this. That the smaller your application is, that the easier it gets to maintain, right? So then, and and if you really say, okay, you, I don't know, you have an application of 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 500 lines of code, yeah, and then you have 2,500 lines of test code, then it's then it's also from this perspective quite interesting. Oh, is this still is this still good? Should this be the case, right? And and do we sometimes not not gold plates than than our testing activities? Mm. I'm not sure. The trade-off in finding really uh, the, the right level of testing and and creating robust and maintainable tests is is really a hard one, especially if yeah. you do this kind of black box testing. Mm. Um, I worked for an application once where we released a version and after this we actually changed nearly everything just from a behavior and view point of view. And then actually you could skip all those UI that you could rewrite them, right? So it's it's the test parameter, right? You should keep them small, I think. And mm. the big tests with the many core lines of code are actually those on the on the high level, on the end-to-end -end level, or something like this, right? But uh, I don't think it's... It has to be about the lines of code that the test itself has. So for me, mm -hmm. I think the test itself is really not testable. Yeah, for sure, for sure, yeah. It's, it's just about the thing between. Yeah. You can have three lines of test code that give me a brain on the then line, and behind that, thousands of lines that create a simulator, for instance, for an yeah, external yeah, device yeah. that well, then talks with your application mm. via the API. Right. Mm. The reason why I was asking whether or not this was new to you, Paul, um, was because for me it is not new, the thought of creating tests for your test infrastructure coming from safety-critical development, mm. because there mm. it is mandatory to have such a thing. Mm. So in in, for me, it's the air traffic management, and it would be similar also for I don't know medicine, for instance, automotive, for instance, where you have uh, regulatives that you have to follow when developing systems and software, and one of which is that you have to verify your tools that you are using. And in in our case, for instance, it would be anything that is automating something and is not by some other means verified has to have some sort of tool qualification. Mm -hmm. So a prime example could be the unit testing framework. Mm -hmm. Because in, from a manual perspective, if you would test your function somehow manually, then you would be the human that is verifying the output. And if you automate this step, so you have some automation framework within which you call your functions to, to retrieve some result, you have to verify that the third tool and the third false are actually either working or and or producing an error. So this would be the simplest case. And then based on that, you would also have to verify your um, the Gherkin, in, for instance. Okay, but what does mean you have to verify and assert true, for example? Do you have to write the real test for it with some other means? Or do you have to check it once and then make a checkbox on some document? How exactly you do it is up, up to you again. 
So mm. it has to be to follow the rules. So if, for instance, you were using a different tool to verify the first tool, then you would have to have essentially verify the second tool. To that. So you're getting in an endless loop, for instance. So yes, at the end of the chain, sooner or later we have at the basis, I call it always, a human that verifies that true does not equal false and that true equals true. Mm. And this has to, a human has to look at the machine producing this output because based on that, you then can create a simple assert, mm. assert true, assert false. And on those two primitives, you can then create your assert equals, assert not equals, and so forth. And if you have your human validation that assert true and assert false work, then you can have your automated tests doing the verification of all so the other stuff. you actually stuff. need to, to test the assertion library manually, right? Or you test it with a simple assertion library, which you can then test manually. Like I said, it comes um, down to that if you, if you spin it the whole chain down, mm. you could do it by simply humanly verify assert true false. Yeah. And then based on that, build up your automated automation test framework. Mm. Mm. And then following that, not just the unit, but also the simulated example that I brought up. So mm -hmm. say you have a system that interacts with another system. And because the other system is not available to you in your development time, you create a simulator for that. Mm. And this simulator software, like I said previously, might also have thousands of lines of code to just mimic the mm. system and behave like it would in real, just being driven by the test. And this mm. then also mm. needs to have some sort of verification. Mm. Yeah, for sure. Mm. So yeah, there, there is actual, actual regulatives that mandate that you are mm. verifying all this test infrastructure. For one project I had to write very many regex-based uh, step bindings for SpecFlow. And they really, so, so for the people that don't know about what it is about, uh, you, you are able with uh, a Gherkin style, so the language is called Gherkin, it's the given when then, and there are several tools that you can use to write Gherkin style tests or specs in a more or less human language and bind it to your API calls. And this binding has to be programmed, of course. And with SpecFlow, you have the possibility to use regex-based bindings. So you define a regex for a part of the sentence that your specs are built up and, uh, and bind it to the execution of a specific method. And from that method, you can go down deeper until you touch your real API. Uh, and if you have many such bindings, it can be that those bindings are rather similar and just differing in subtle things, just the other regex expression. To, for one form of the sentence, you go to the one method, and for another slightly different form of the method, you go, uh, sentence, you go to a different method. And as it is with regexes, you could be in a situation where you add a new regex to an existing set of regexes that somehow eats all possibilities. Mm -hmm. So if you have a rather complicated and explicit regex and then you just add another that is a dot star, it eats everything. Yeah, does the, 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 the BDD framework check this for you? Do they throw an exception if you have two matching? Bindings for for one for one step or what is done? Uh, yeah, both yeah, yeah. Good question. I think I think you get an exception if you have ambiguous bindings. Mm -hmm. But yeah, good question. But I, I had a feeling it was it was really hard to to keep 
my to keep myself assured mm -hmm. that the binding is really working properly. And so I started to add a little test suite that just verified that the, the step that was called by a specific sentence or a specific step really did the real th uh, the, the thing that it should do with the API. So it was basically the setup code for the specs. Mm -hmm. So I, I wrote meta specs <laughs> wow. for the specs. Yeah, so that was the first part where I really had the feeling did that it, I should do it. Did it pay off afterwards? Do you think it was a good decision? Would you do I it had again? A better I had a better feeling, yeah. Mm. And I think testing is all about confidence. And I had a better... Before that I was r rather unsure because I think it was about 60 bindings that were rather similar. Mm. Just very little differences. And then I had a better feeling that it, it hit the right uh, parts of the, of the layer. And also the same when you uh, create your, the simulator. <coughs> I would like to bring the simulator example back again. Because if it has so many lines of code, then you are also getting more confident if it is covered by a corresponding test. Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, the, 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 the base question of this tweet was that the test automation should be done upfront or at least within the within the development of the of the software, right? If I understood you correctly. And I mean this is also a very interesting question. Should people start to do this classically test automation if you think about a selenium test mm -hmm. up front where you say, okay, you know this button will have this ID and you will be able to access it with this ID and and and, and this text box will have this ID. And afterwards you should okay. check if this stands in this text box, right? This is actually what would what could be a solution? Um, I mean, if you if you think back of of of, of Kent Beck's XP, this was one of the things he proposed to do, right? He didn't only talk about um, um, small unit tests right up front. He really says you should test the user stories up front, right? He didn't really go into detail how to do this, but one of them could be to create a Selenium test up front, right? Yeah, so it's about a. a driving into end this outer loop. Exactly, yeah. If you think about how does such a test automation layer evolve, you won't, you won't write it because you know I will probably need something like this and this, and then I will write it up front and then use it for my tests. That's, in my experience, not what I do. I start with a, the test, the, the gherkin, whatever, and then I, I see what do I need to get the connection to my production API that I want to test. And then these uh, parts in between evolve and they start out very, very simple because it's just that simple single case. And then comes a little bit different test case that needs a little um, adapted behavior of this automation layer. And it gets complicated over time. And then sometimes I have the feeling, okay, and now this part is so complicated by itself that I'm not confident anymore that it really finds the bugs and that it really brings the... Isn't it actually a smell if you have such a huge layer to actually be able to access your system for testing? No, but with the simulator then? I mean, the simulator is... I, I would see it more as a mock, right? That, that's okay, so you, you mock uh, because you don't have access to a system, but the, the, the layer you talk about is more like I understood something to actually access an API or to be able to test an API, right? Uh, do you really 
and, and, and if you say, if test scaling more and more, this layer gets bigger and bigger, but shouldn't you then look for ways where you don't need this big layer? Maybe you need it for one or two or three smoke yeah. uh, integration tests or something like this, but this should not be the use case because, of course, um, writing an end-to-end -end test is the easiest way to write a test, I would say, right? So from, from, from really, you just say, okay, I need this, and I click on the button, and then should, this should happen, but it comes with all these disadvantages, right? So should we really invest so much time in, in, in really building up such additional layers just for testing, or shouldn't we, we start to think, if we do this, maybe we already go in the wrong direction? Huh? I agree that this is smell, yes. But, yes, but I, I have it, and if you have it, you still have to be, you maintain your, your confidence. Okay, yeah. But I think if you start losing your confidence about the things that you have now, uh, it's just another piece of code that has the value to be correct and then yeah, be tested. I, I, I yeah. totally understand that this yeah. exists but in, it, in, the, in the real world. Yeah? Yeah. And the same actually is also for the simulator, right? Because, I mean, there are people who say that a test which, which really contains a lot of mocking is, is also a smell, and I, I would totally mm. confirm this. So if you really need a, a, a simulator which can simulate an external system in a way that you also need to test the simulator, right? And maybe you also need to test that it behaves like the, the original system. Maybe then you also make too much usage of, of, of these tests which really need an external system. Maybe yeah. you can test the, the, the core logic already on another level that you don't need to mock away. I, I think if you, uh, the, the, the fact that you need some, end, or do some end-to-end -end testing doesn't mean that you don't do other testing as well. So of course, if you are trying to execute your business logic just <coughs> from end-to-end, -end, okay, of course it's a problem. But I think there's, a, it's reasonable to have a few yeah, set of exactly well-chosen well yeah, exactly. uh, end-to-end things. Yeah, but then, then this normally doesn't involve that big that you really say, okay, I have a, a huge layer in between for automation, right? If you say, I don't know, you have 10. Well, I always call them smoke tests because they just go to those critical mm. parts and they should really stay because they are really costly, right? Yeah. They are really cost-intensive in maintaining and and also the, the, this, this layer is very cost-intensive to, to maintain. Absolutely, yeah. But on the other hand, you always have to to weigh the costs for implementing and maintenance of these parts of these layers and the benefits for sure. you for get sure. of definitely, it. Definitely, definitely, yeah. yeah. Uh, that's, a, that's a tricky trade-off, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, <laughs> once, I just want one to day leave. I will find it. Yeah. <laughs> So it's always the same. Well, I'm moving from very many tests where I say, oh, I don't like this. There are so many useless tests or they break so much. And then you go to another direction where you really say, I will only focus on the important things and I will try to not have duplication on, on test coverage so that, you know, if I change something, I need to change it on one place, also in the tests. And then you see, oh, okay, I have so many things which are not tested because I try to yeah. <laughs> avoid all these duplication tests. And then you go again in another direction. It's like ping pong and maybe one day you are in the middle where you should be for half a minute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I don't believe in that. <laughs> well, one thing I want to mention, I think it's important to think about when do I need the correct behavior of code. So mm -hmm. for example, for the production code, 
I need the correct behavior when the real user that I wrote the software for uses the software. That's the point in time when it has to work. So that's production. And on the other hand, what is the same for a test automation code, for the test automation layer? When do I want to have this piece of code correct? And it's so what is the production case for test automation code? And that's the time when the tests are running. Mm -hmm. So I think that this um, to distinguish between production code and test code, of course, makes sense. But also the test automation code has its production. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. I so I think running the tests is the production case for the test automation code. Yeah. That, that, and for that, it's really important if it's a reasonable amount of code to to have something for it. But, but that's what I meant earlier. Actually, you write a tool to, to run your tests. And of course, a tool needs to be tested, yeah, right? Yeah. So it's not, as you also said, it's not the test. It, it's really the, the tool for yeah, the test. Exactly. And of course, so it's actually a normal application in this kind of, of context, right? Yeah. So are all your questions answered? Do you feel confident to continue this discussion on Twitter with our input now? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not so much into discussing on Twitter, but... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the takeaway for me is, of course, to see it more as a smell if I have the feeling that I should do it. Mm. Maybe my test automation layer is too thick. But, yeah. For a few projects, it really got thick, yeah. Mm -hmm. Just to be more confident that I really can justify the effort that is going into this layer. Mm -hmm. That's a good point, yeah. So then, this time. This time, of course, I have something. Um, well, it's more about the, the, the understanding again. I mean, it's, it's not the first time that I understood it, but you know, if you come to a new project, especially, it, it, it turns out to, to be so important to really understand that, that software engineering is, is not really a technical discipline. It's, it's so much of a social discipline. Which is a, what a social discipline, right? It's it's so much about people, which is, which is uh, I guess often forgotten, and and especially if you um, come to a new project where you see okay the team, for example, is not evolving already so good, like you had the experience with other teams, then you really see the difference, right? If you have six or seven developers who really are a team, who work together as a team, it's, it's massively how much more they could deliver than if you have seven people, right, who should be a team. And then I thought about this and I came to the idea actually that the big companies like, like Google, Facebook, Amazon, what they, what they do actually is they, 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 they treat software development teams not as things which should deliver something, the deliverable for them is to building up a team that can deliver, right? And I think this is very often forgotten if you go to, to big companies where they say, okay, we're doing now Agile, we're doing a Scrum, we are going into this approach where we say, okay, we give lots of autonomy, uh, where teams are very autonomous and self-organized. What they, I think, need to understand that, of course, in the beginning, it will take time. They will not deliver software as fast as they did before, but once they have delivered a software team, <laughs> which they do by their own, they have a real big weapon in their hands where they can do a lot of stuff with, right? Mm. 
And this is something you, you stumbled upon recently? No, I, I thought about this very often. I mean, I'm, I'm, I understood this, I would say, quite early that it's, it's all about people or lots of stuff. I don't, I don't want to say that craftsmanship is also very important and, and knowing the techniques, but actually it's, it's really a lot about people and I think also management um, needs to understand this more and more, uh, needs to, needs to uh, anticipate more in this idea that if you have a team and if you, if you invest in building up such teams, it, it makes you really powerful as a company. And that might be a problem for consultancies. For sure, for sure. Freelancers and consultancies are actually uh, somehow in a, in a, in a, a different um, position, if, yeah. you, if you think about this. That's true, yeah. Okay, the thing that I want to talk about, um, a few people, a few colleagues from my company where I'm working, and, and me took a training. It was Agile Design Beyond the Basics with J.B. Rainsberger last October, I think. And we really liked it, and he has some idea, the idea of the universal architecture, he calls it where he basically says everything that is valuable to talk to, be it files that you're generating or web service calls you're doing or whatever, are always bad to handle. So you want to get yourself some, some layer between the thing that you are caring about in your software and the, what he calls the horrible outside world. So as soon as you are starting interacting with other systems, be it the operating system on the same machine or be it some external processes and systems, via some <coughs> file system access or, or, or web calls, for example, you are entering a world that is really hard to test and, and where everything can happen. So that's the horrible outside world. The thing where you want to live is the thing where you have everything under your control and that's what he calls the happy zone. Mm -hmm. So that's the thing where everything is in memory and instantaneously and you have no dependencies on anything that you cannot control. So that is your happy zone. And the layer in between, and that's the third just miss missing part of this idea of the universal architecture, it's what he calls the DMC. The, the back zone. <laughs> the, the demilitarized zone. A demilitarized zone, that's what it is. And from that model, we, 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 in, in these two days, we, we developed a really simple example in, in pairs. And it was very interesting to, to think about software in this rather simple picture. So basically, your, the thing that you are writing is just living in two zones. It's, it's living in the, in the DMC where you talk to all the things that you need, but that are not so easy to manage. So where you make the step going from your code to the file system, for example, or make the web service calls. Uh, and, and hopefully the, the better part is in this happy zone where you can control everything. And the idea that he did was to say, if you start coding just like making things done, um, you, you start in a DMC because you immediately get called by your web framework, for example, or you call some file system API, so you're immediately directly talking to this horrible outside world. So you are, by definition, in this DMC. 
And then you have to apply um, design techniques to get the interesting part of your application out of this DMC into the happy zone. And then we practices, practice it a little, uh, techniques how to make this happen, for example. So how to make the distinction and how to loosen the parts and the connection and the dependencies between the parts that you need. And after that uh, training in, in our company, we, we wanted to, to spread this idea a little bit more and we make, made a developer meeting where we just had the idea, and now you can laugh, but to just use Hello World. So the really console.writeline Hello World semicolon and think about it, just about this little line of code where is the horrible outside world? What is the thing that is interesting, that really interests me on this problem, on this actually solution of the problem? And so where, where can I extract it into a happy zone and where can I make a DMC out of it? And it, it was not the, this, this laughable um, thing about enterprise hello world where people are injecting yeah, yeah, yeah. and stuff. I wanted so, to say so, yeah, enterprise fist bus. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> of course, that's, that's the thing that you're immediately talking about, but that, that was not the thing. It was about uh, thinking about all the things that are standing in this single line of code and reasoning about it. What are the parts and how can, what is the easiest way that I can think of to separate those parts? To, to start slowly extracting some things uh, and say, okay, this is DMC, that's where I talk to the console, for example, and this is business, mm. where I'm just talking about what I'm really interested in and what are the, the means in my language that I can use to separate those things. And it was an incredibly interesting exercise to do it, okay. especially in a group of 15 developers in a room just arguing about what is the thing and what can we do and why should we do it and, and what's the reason why we, we don't like it, what we have. And it was really amazing, just starting from the single line of code. Uh, yeah, it was a great idea. And Can we see this code somewhere online? Yeah, I, I, like I, I then it, it somehow um, went too big in this meeting and everybody was arguing and more, a more functional approach and, and we have to inject this interface and so and, and people came with all their experiences and, and ideas, of course, so it, it was a really, it somehow exploded after an hour, but it was really interesting. And then I got back and just started for myself making a, a, a really micro baby step approach and committing everything that I did. Mm -hmm. and, and I have it on my GitHub, on my GitHub page, it's called Greedy. Like you can see what, what I did, it's just as one idea how to get from, from very little steps to some components you extract and stuff like this. So it, it was really very, very in, uh, interesting idea, the one, experience. One line, 15 people, 30 opinions and two hours yeah. <laughs> okay. But is there a comma between hello and world? Actually, that's Pardon? interesting. Is there a comma between hello and world? Uh, I didn't care about why is uh, this important. Well, you know, punctu it's, it's a punctua punctuation saves life, right? Well, let's eat grandma or let's eat comma grandma. Ah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, uh, <laughs> so you, okay, I will look it up. Send a pull request. <laughs> Okay, it's, it's your turn, Christian. Well, for me, for me, quite simple. I'm planning to attend the next Gopher conference. 
the one in London. So the conference about the Go programming language. Cool. When is it? In August. Will you prepare training or will it just be a visitor this time? At least I'm going, I'm going to be a visitor. Whether or not I'm going to propose a talk, it's not yet decided. Okay. There, there are some ideas in the back of my head. Though, again, the, the question, how, how much can I milk this topic in order to be viable for one hour or 40 minutes or whatever the duration is. Mm. Cool. So, David, you're eager with your new topic. Yes. Um, something I want to bring into the round is the discussion about horizontal or vertical architectures. Um, what's the idea behind this? Um, uh, <laughs> actually, it's pretty simple. Um, somehow you need to cut your, your big application into smaller chunks. And if you think of your application as a... As an, as an area, you can cut it with your, your scissor into, into, into verticals or horizontals or something in between. But in the end, this is something that stays. And, and if you take a look at the history of computer uh, software engineering, you will see that we moved a little bit from, from this horizontal approach to a vertical approach. And why was this done? Um, in my opinion, mainly because with, with horizontal architectures, you have this issue that if you really want to change something on a business, if you say, okay, like 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 um, Eric Evan always says, um, if you change the business a little bit, you should just change the the, the software a little bit, right? And it was sorry to interrupt you. When we talk about horizontal and vertical, I think we should define what are the axes of this picture we have in our head so yeah. what's what's on the horizontal part what changes along the the horizontal yeah, line that's, that's, and what changes along the vertical line yeah that's true that's true so the, the vertical line is would say from from the from the user interface to the persistence right we sliced it then in horizontals where we said okay we have the UI, then we have some kind of, of, of service layer, some kind of business layer, some, some kind of flow layer maybe, which, which just controls the flow. Then we had this, this domain layer where I said, okay, this is how you calculate the age if you have a birthday and the current date. And then you had actually really the persistence um, persistence layer. So the, the, the business layer in between, I think it's it's not fully defined. I think you have different, you can you find architectures where they split it up um, further. But at the end, this is this is how you split it. But what are the benefits of splitting it like this? What are the reasons why we did it so long? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> no, I think that... The, 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 They're still doing it sometimes. Yeah, I, I, I mean... The, the reason is that you split it then on a technical level, I would say, right? Writing UI code is mainly, mostly different in writing business logic code and, and writing code that goes to a persistence. And, and also from a testing perspective, it, it seemed to make sense, right? You can test the business layer and, and mock the, the persistence. You can maybe just test the persistence, maybe just could test if the view is rendered correctly. So, so I, I think it's, a, it's about dependency management, for example. So, yeah, exactly, exactly. So yeah. What, what depends on what? Exactly, yeah, that, that's, that's, that's What can that's change true. independently of what and what exactly. does depend on something else. Yeah, because the first thing you learn at university is that the, the, the UI layer should never exist the persistence layer, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, no SQL in JavaScript. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, the, the, this is where, where we started. And then there were the people who, who said, okay, no, this is not 
mainly not good because what's the big disadvantage is that if you touch something, if you say, I don't know, we need uh, a third name for a person, entity, and then we need to show it in the UI, you really need to cut through all these layers, right? And you need to cut through the whole application, actually. And, and that's where they said, okay, now we should maybe do verticals, where we say, okay, we have business entities in, in its own vertical, where we say we have an, an entity and an, an, an vertical for persons and we have an entity for for our shop and then we have an entity for for our employees. I mean now you have this feeling that the, the, the people tend to, to think that this is a better approach, right? But if, if if this is really the case then I ask myself why why we did um um twenty years something different, right? weren't we clever enough to find out that, that this is not the best approach, right? Or what are the disadvantages of these vertical systems, right? Mm. So the, 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 the whole discussion for me is, is at some point a little bit, a little bit pointless if you start to, to slice you, your application into verticals or horizontals, you just should slide as small as possible, right? Doesn't matter if, if 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 in which direction, right? And and of course you should cut it on on a business level, but what what's the benefit of of discussing all this? Yeah, mm -hmm. what's what I what's the it, benefit it, of this effort, right? To to right. to really uh, convince people that no, you 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 should you should you should paint your 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 architecture images in a total different way because what you're doing now is 2005 right <laughs> <laughs> so so to bring it down you were a little bit meandering for me about the topic so your your question or your is what's the benefits of yeah, well, what, between exactly. horizontal or vertical layering but when would you use which one when would you go into which direction so I think it's important to be aware that all this idea of horizontal versus vertical layering can be fulfilled on different levels. So for example, the, today the most obvious thing of course would be do we have a monolith that is just running on a single web server and everything is done there, maybe with three assemblies that are called UI mm -hmm. business and data access for example. Or do I have a, a microservice architecture where we have these small verticals that are doing everything? Uh, and I, I think that's that are the two extremes. But you can have a monolith, monolith yeah, that is is exactly. really and you nicely will have, right. Nobody will create a vertical architecture where he says, "Okay, I talk now from my UI to the database." Right? So yeah, it's just about not not vertical versus horizontal. It's just about splitting your application to smaller yeah, chunks. Yeah, but but even if you do if if you still do a monolith, you can structure the code and the design within the monolith in that in a way that is really uh, vertical oriented. Yeah, exactly. even if it's not as separated as it is in a, in a microservice architecture, but you can be oriented in this vertical from in this vertical idea. So I think it is a kind of a continuum where you can be in, in, in some respect. So you can, you do not have to have this extra duplicated logging and excessive infrastructure that you might have in really big microservice mm. architectures where you have to do so many things beside the business because now you have really many services to, to manage and to 
to monitor and stuff like this. So I, th I think it's important to know, no, no matter where I am, I can think this in this direction or in this direction. Before I said in uh, with the with this example that we did from this universal architecture idea, I think it's always important to have a clear picture. Why are you deciding to go in that or in that direction? So what is the problem do you have now with the design or the architecture of your application as you have it now? or as you are discussing it now, what are the problems and why do I try to go another route? Why do I want to change something? Because mm. every change and every benefit that you get from one move also includes some drawbacks probably. So for example, yeah, if, for you, sure. if you want to have these independent parts of my application and I want to go microservices, then I have a, have a whole new space of problems that I wouldn't mm. have if, if I have just a monolith. And so I have to justify all these moves. So what is the problem that I see? What is the fear that I have? What might bite me in the future? And why do I think and it's a bet? As we talked about last episode, it's a bet. Will it, do I think, do we think as a team, it will pay off to go that or that direction? Mm. Yeah, that's true, that's true. I mean, that's the core, right? That's that's the core of all decisions we should make or how, yeah. how we should make them, right? Yeah, so know why that's, we do that, it. That, that's why I think it's too dangerous that it, it seems, may, maybe it just seems to me because there are just a few few people who drive this bubble maybe where I'm in, right? But I always have this feeling that we're always running in one direction and running in the other. Why, why can such a huge... Um, principles or maybe architectural styles cannot live parallel to each other, right? Why, why do we now have to say, okay, uh, maybe that's the better approach, right? And then we say again, no, maybe that's the better approach, right? Well, so, in reality, I think we all know they can live next to each other. Yeah, but... but in reality, but, we have it. Nobody has a really system that is just X and has nothing of Y. I don't really believe in in this. Yeah, but why do so many people start to, to build microservices these days? Do you, do you think they, they all have the, the, the issues they can solve no. with microservices or do they just want to do it because they also want to try it out? And, sure. Uh, I don't think it's, it's not per se an invalid approach to be interested in a kind of architecture and try it out. I but uh, yeah. I think, especially with microservices, I, I would be really hesitant to, to say from... From the beginning, we have to do microservices yeah, for, for anything sure. yeah, because that's, poof, that's a really big decision. But I like this, what you said. I also think it's important to, to be interested in new stuff, but actually I think you shouldn't be interested in new stuff when it comes to production code or to, to real projects, right? I mean, that's a little bit of a difference. And, and that's why I think it's so important that companies, for example, give their employees some, some slack time or some free time, mm -hmm. or, I don't know, maybe once a week or once a month, where they can try out new stuff. Otherwise, they will do it in, in, the, in the products, <laughs> right? And it's normally... <laughs> Doesn't end too good. Yeah, that's 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 the point. But yeah, that's that's basically the, the core principle, right? Of of creating and then finding out what do we really need, and and then going into this direction. And and actually, you're totally right with what you said. I also have the feeling that starting with a microservice architecture is almost always false, right? Because you will never start. With, with a chunk of code which is so big that you really need to, to have 
parallel services which have their own on on, on, on one time and life cycles. It's yeah. normally is not the case if you yeah. don't start with, I don't know, thousands of people creating software code and then anyway you have different issues yeah. I guess. I have difficulties somehow relating to all this. Okay. Was, Sounds interesting. <laughs> <laughs> okay. uh, for, for one, um, I don't believe I've ever experienced a completely horizontally layered architecture. So I haven't worked on such a project. Okay. And I also don't believe I've ever worked on a completely vertically oriented uh, software project, whatever. I've never seen an architecture, or at least from a paper perspective, the software was meant to be oriented completely horizontally. Or it was it also at the same time, it was never meant to be completely oriented vertically. Yeah, but let me ask you one question. If you open the root folder of these projects, what do you see there? Do you see technical terms like database and then business and then no, UI no. and services? No. Or do something like, I don't know, business A, business B, business C, business no, D? No, no. So all the various components that are living in the whole cloud of the, the, the system itself. So it's, it's not a technical term in terms of database and then something it's would go too far because now to describe the components would then also require some knowledge about the whole system itself. Though from from my cursory thinking, I don't believe it would be in either in either direction. Okay. So it's it's more like a, a hodgepodge of of various things. The the only takeaway I can have I I don't believe to have experienced the the idealistic way of this project now is vertically oriented or this project is horizontally oriented yeah. and either and also not I have never seen a project that is completely microservice oriented I still haven't seen really I okay. still haven't worked on microservices I would like I would like to finally see some project where yes this is all microservice and this is how it's meant to be the last five years or something no experience in either way it's always some mis uh, mixture of whatever it was mm -hmm. so far so, which is why I'm, uh, I have a difficulty to relate to either of the now this is vertically or this is horizontally. But what uh, what are the organizing principles that you are using within this code base? And it's, I guess, a rather large code base. So, how do you organize stuff? In one one criteria can be, a, and as the. Uh, processes then the utility libraries for that so it's more processes in what sense do you think of operating system processes operating system process right okay and then another under the same layer you also have the the utility libraries so that is handling i don't know json encoding or providing support for json encoding as an example or video encoding as another library so so do you write functional code or do you no. write... No, no, it is actual object-oriented code. And it also has been for my previous project. So it's not just the one that I'm currently in. All I... Yeah. So you don't think in some kind of hierarchy when you think about the project on the artifacts within the code base, the components, the classes. Is it that what you're saying? So you yes, don't think the, about... The most commonality would the most common thing about this would be a somewhat resemblance of a microservice architecture as far as I've always understood now that there are various things living in the process space and they are somehow communicating via messages for instance 
about in-memory messaging system, somehow like that. So perhaps microservices are the most closely related mm. comparison, mm. I guess. Yeah, maybe. but still, like uh, since I haven't seen a microservice, modern microservice software, I can't tell whether or not this is now a microservice thing or not. Mm. Well, I guess it's not because it's still a monolith, right? They cannot live. Autonomously, autonomously on, on their own those components in your application, right? So can they run on their own? Can they be deployed on their own? No, can, no, no. Okay. So. But of course you can still modelize, modularize it like like a microservice. Yeah, that's what I, what I said earlier. So no matter what the structure really, or the, the overarching architecture, whatever is, you can have slices in either way. Mm -hmm. And, so, ha and, yeah, and have sure. the benefits of slicing sure. it like this. The, the very first software that I worked with was is pretty much something like a microservice architecture. Not in terms of that each of the running services were had their own uh, operating system process. It was still one big operating system process that was running. Yet within that one, there were various services running on their own in terms of instantiated them, them and all they had was a reference to some messaging, in-memory messaging system, and mm -hmm. all they received was messages from that one. And these services communicated exclusively via passing messages back and forth mm -hmm. via that system. So yeah, you could go to the extreme and compartmentize these services and extract them and have these messages being transported via network. Yeah. Yet still, mm -hmm. some of these services were related to the database access, other services were about the socket communication. Why a mm. network? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> there is a recently I read a blog post by Mark Seaman. I don't know if you know this guy. Mm -mm. No. Never heard of him. Never heard of him. He's very, very active in the area. So he wrote a, a book about dependency injection, for example, in .NET, and he's very active in this whole area and functional programming and stuff. Dependency injection or dependency inversion? Injection. Really? Okay. Yeah. And um, he wrote a blog post about these styles of architecture where he, I think he really nicely describes how to go or how it somehow is um, obvious to evolve from a typical three-layered architecture to an onion or hexagonal architecture. And he basically says, um, if you think about this classical UI depends on business, or let's say, let's call it like this, but UI sorry, depends on... The sorry for interruption, but can you maybe explain your, your understanding of hexagonal architecture? Because we didn't touch this topic so far. Okay. Uh, so for me, hexagonal architecture and onion architecture is just the same. Okay. I for me, I don't think it's a difference. It's, uh, what are they uh, basically? <laughs> Either way. <laughs> okay, maybe let's let's go this uh, evolution that he talks about in his uh, in his blog post mm -hmm. because I think it it describes it really nicely. I, I hope I can I can say it uh, in my own words. So if you think about starting with a layered architecture, where you have on the top you have the user interface layer, and the user interface layer depends on the domain layer and then the domain layer depends on the data access layer. Mm -hmm. Let's compartmentize it like this. These dependencies mean 
from starting from the from the bottom, the data access layer does not depend on anything. Mm-hmm. The domain layer depends not on the user interface layer, but it depends on the domain on the data access layer. And on the top, the user interface layer does not directly depend on the data access layer, but just depend on the domain layer in between. So that's the reason and the benefit, if you want, from this architecture. Everybody just knows about its immediate neighbor downstream. So you don't have dependencies in two directions and you don't have dependencies cross building a net. You just have dependencies to your next level downstream. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he says, um, what is the problem if we have the domain layer depending on the data access layer? It's exactly that. We cannot think about and, and work with the domain layer if it always depends on this data access layer. So we, then it is the situation where we start mocking databases and stuff like this, very low level, just to get a, a hand on or a handle on this domain layer. So one idea that you can do, you can try to to remove uh, to to switch the dependency between the domain layer in between and the data access layer. So to say, okay, the data access layer can depend on the domain layer and not the domain layer on the data access layer, so that the data access uh, that the domain layer can live on its own in the middle. Mm-hmm. So now you have at, uh, still three layers, mm-hmm. but the top one, the user interface layer, and the bottom one, the data access layer, both de- both depend somehow on the domain layer. Because it does not make sense to have some data access layer for this domain, for this project, that is just living by itself. It, it has no sense. So it's, it's reasonable to have a dependency on the domain. And the user interface by itself is not a uh, universal user interface. It's depending, of course, on the domain of this project. So it's okay to do this like this. Yeah. And if you then start evolving the system, you will get things in the in the middle, clumped in the middle, and and things to the outside where you don't not only have database, but you also have web services and other user interfaces, and you can see web service calls that are coming to your system as another kind of user interface. For example, it's not really that different than a, a graphical user interface, to, for example. So you start evolving things in the middle, and you have the things around that are talking to somewhere else, mm-hmm. and. So you, you did the, um, what you have now as a picture. Uh, first with the layer architecture, you had this idea of, of layers one on top of each other. And now you have this idea of one thing in the middle and things around it. And these things around it build a layer on, the, on this inner kernel, so to say. And you can make it a little bit more and, and have more layers on top of the second layer and the fourth layer on top of the around the third layer and so you get something like an onion mm-hmm. with these many skins around each other. So that's basically the idea of the onion architecture. So the balances always go from the from the outside to the inner world. And, and the inner world by itself can live on its own. It does not have any dependencies uh, to the outside. And then I think he says the going from from the onion to the hexagonal, to this ports and adapter exactly, yeah. um, architecture is basically the idea to, to have groups of things in this outer layer that somehow depend uh, or 
have to talk to each other and depend on each other so it makes sense to to make some clusters of things on this outer layer and those clusters make this this uh these ports that you can attach to the outer world and you can attach to the things that are really talking to some sap or whatever sounds a little bit abstract what is there yeah, an example no it, yeah it's <laughs> from from alistair cockburn i Coburn, think yeah, yeah. And he no the, the idea is actually how you how you phrased it right that you have these ports and adapters right and and then actually as you said it's it's pretty close to the union architecture but I think this is a big difference right because you somehow get another grouping into the game right yeah. and onions you just have this 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 um, additional layers but where, where everything in each layer in a, in a single layer everything is more or less equally valid exactly yeah. And you don't have some separation within a layer. Yeah. And then if you start grouping those things that remain to that uh, keep together yeah, yeah. Then you in, get in a layer, you get these vertical bigger section. chunks. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He, he so. chose that I've never experienced such a thing because it's way too abstract for me. I have no relation <laughs> of how this would well, practically look like or what it practically would mean. <laughs> well, you would really have your, your core domain in the middle. That, I, got, I got that part. Okay, core right. domain in the middle. Great. No. Exactly. But and then and the, and the, and the, the important part is in the middle means with no dependencies on all these other things. Okay, for, for, exactly. for all these intents and purposes, I got and the middle layer. Yeah, so from the beginning to okay. the... But then you normally have multiple contexts which are working on this middle layer, right? And then in the union architecture, just say in the middle you have the core domain, which is no dependencies. That actually what you what you mentioned earlier, they the happy the happy universe, something like this, right? The happy zone. Yeah. The happy zone, yeah. yeah. And then outside you get, for example, at, at some point the persistence and the UI, right? But they were still layered somehow in the union in a in a in a in the onion, onion architecture. Onion, yeah. Sorry. They were still layered in the onion Yeah, if, if you look at, at the sorry, if you look yeah. at, at the pie of this of this picture, if you have this circle in circle in circle, yeah. and you look at the pie of this thing, exactly, it's you, it's you just another form of a, of a of a stack. Exactly, yeah. you, actually, you don't need to make a circle out of them. You just can layer them over. Yeah, I, I think right. the idea of the circle is just that it's it's no obvious direction from top to bottom. Yeah. As you, if you depict it typically in a layered architecture, but it's just going to whatever it needs to go to. Exactly, yeah. exactly, yeah. It's true. And I still don't understand what the jump now is from the onion to the sports and adapter. The, the jump, in my opinion, is that you group or cluster those things outside the, 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 the onion in a vertical way. And there's why why just outside? So the what what is outside a somehow logical cluster also has its um, representative on the inner more inner circle. Yeah, but you would never split the inner circle, right? You just split based on this the the adapters and ports then spread and then you would would group those things, huh? That's at least was my understanding. The core, the real core of the Onion stays one thing, right? The, the real core, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, but, that's but what I mean. as you go to the outer Everything layers, else, yeah, can you get, get separated. Yeah, yeah and you start clustering. I'm, complete, start I'm completely lost <laughs> what you're talking about. Yeah, and it's, 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 and then, Okay, somehow I get the UI. Okay, got to understand that the UI is outside, the database is outside. But as soon as you jump to, yeah, you make your, your clusters and... You're not a real software cluster. architect, right? No, that's no, the issue. No, <laughs> no for, for, example, for example, if you have a system that is somehow <laughs> relating to accounting... <laughs> 
there is a, a subdomain where you're talking about accounting. You have to, to contact your external accounting system, for example. And maybe you have some little UI that helps entering accounting relating stuff, exactly. for example. Then these are things that are closely from, from the domain and from the problem, problem space of the application are closely related together. Although they are technically maybe really different things from a user interface on some React, arc, uh, React uh, exactly. front-end to a, a file system uh, interface where you write CSV files to some legacy host application, for and, example. And, and the, the, hexa, um, the, the hexagon structure is, I think, also very um, chosen by intention because you then can always plug six around and they always get more right and, and they always just... Depend yeah, on this it, it's just because it helps to think about this exactly. ease and, and their uh, the plugin together, but of course it doesn't have to, six is, no, is for not sure, an important yeah, number. It doesn't yeah. need to be six, but at least you, you get the idea, right? You can tessellate the, the pattern. You could also call it <laughs> quadratic or triangular. Yeah, for yeah. Sure. because for these sure. three forms, I don't know, that are the ones that I know for now that can tessellate. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So you'd say in this ports and adapters, it's just about that you have several such core domains, which by some sort of adapter, here's the adapter, by some sort of interface, communicate with the other core domain. Yeah. Or with the other domain, you might perhaps have just Well, actually, it, tra it translated it in a way that, that the more outer living thing can work with it, right? Yeah, I, I guess the, the, the port is the thing from your from your inner perspective, from your domain inner core perspective, the port is the thing where you now have to go to the outside world somehow and to interact with something outside of your software. And then on that part, there is just an adapter that translates what you have and you need to the thing the other things are really doing. Exactly. That's what I mean. It's, yeah, it's always so like, you know, know there's this port and adapter pattern where you say... Yeah, and this and, and the important thing I guess is the you you have a increasingly big all almost all compassing core mm -hmm. or call it happy zone. I think it's the same idea. And the just always more and more thinner part for these adapters. So these adapters don't ideally do nothing more than translate. Exactly, yeah. But have no, ideally no business exactly, in, yeah. in it. So even the mapping maybe will be within your domain if it's somehow reasonable. Yeah. But it should be really, th really dumb. Just one data format to another data format. So that you have really the core <laughs> within it's your It's very hands. sad that the listeners cannot see Christian's face right now. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and our hands, I guess. With our hands, our we do our best ourselves. we can. <laughs> No, the room really is cool. filled with onions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's 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 the discussions which 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 really interesting. And and I also like this this what you say that you you don't have a feeling that you ever used this in a project. But I, and so I'm, I'm completely blissful. So I can't say yeah. I have no idea. So simply <laughs> no, go on. And but what, what, what is one of the issues with these architectural patterns, at least from a developer point of view, in my opinion, is that they look super cool on, on presentations. They look super cool mm. on some Confluence pages. But when it comes 
to your project you have open in your in your IDE, right? You don't see this. Yeah, and that's I, the problem. I, I Absolutely. Think I, we should really join forces and create a plugin for IntelliJ, which shows you know the some file structure on the left hand side, which shows you a real graphical. I don't know whatever you need. Maybe you need an onion. Maybe you need a hexagonal. Maybe you need just layers, and you click in this layer, and then you are where you want to be. Right? Yeah. I don't know how we, we I mean, could from, save from, this from, on a file system. From from this perspective, I do have a relation because my my private project that I'm working on. So go solve exactly this problem. Please no, no, say this no, now. no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's written in Go. <laughs> for, for one, it's written in Go. So yes. So yes, it is a Go program, and so it's a, a level editor for an old computer game. And I was writing this with the intent of, of making it with the vague idea that I had of domain-driven design. So I tried mm -hmm. to have some sort of a core domain and then try to get the to the to the um, other domains and interfaces and yeah. have such an idealistic view of the whole thing. And it was only based on my rough idea that I had about domain-driven design, having read a little bit of books about it. I had some rough idea about how my packages were structured and the dependencies. And when Peter uh, and I worked on that, so the two days where he helped me trying to figure out whether or not it is domain-driven design and how to make it better and so forth, um, we tried to visualize the whole thing. I tried to explain how I envisioned the dependencies and Peter didn't get a grasp on it because also this is a rather large problem. I don't know, it's a large project large enough that it don't see exactly how it's it's being structured. Mm. So we, we created a, a, a visual representation of the dependencies of the packages. Mm -hmm. And as soon as we found a, a one that wasn't clustered, so clustered in a way that you couldn't read the text, yet it was spacious enough that you could read the text, it was pretty much closely what I had in mind in, in, in terms of layers here, there are the layers of dependencies where I had my utility functions, where I had some sort of the core business logic and I don't know, the ap actual application that would wire mm -hmm. it together. Mm -hmm. And this, uh, this then was a representation, representation of what I had in mind. Yeah, that's really so interesting. So to come back the, to your question, your dependencies of the packages. Would yeah. be and, and then visualizing this, these dependencies. I mean, there are tools which can do, I mean, J Architect or Independent, they really give you exactly this, but you don't see this on a daily basis. So I would really like to have this integrated in the EDA with, with rules which, which apply then that you cannot just import the namespace from somewhere else. Mm. Or at least it asks you, do you really want to do this? Yeah. And then stuff like this. So I think there could be a lot of improvement. Because I think then it would be much more obvious, right? What was the intention? Because if you come to a project, you just see the folders. It's always just the level of folders. And then you think, okay, they tried to do this, they tried to do that, but it, it's, it's never obvious. Of course, you can read up and then find some documentation, but mainly it's outdated. Right? Mainly it's, it's not, not really up to date. And then you just need to make your own idea of, of, of what was the idea behind this. Mm -hmm. But this, your, what you said earlier reminds me, one time when I went to the Vienna Coding Dojo, I met Peter a few hundred meters before and we, we went the last way together and I complained about, okay, I was discussing the whole day with a colleague about some decisions and I didn't really like what he proposed and it, it makes no sense in Yadda Dam. And then he said, yeah, so I, I, we, we talked about what the problem actually was, and he said, "Yeah, okay, I can understand, but you are you are 
then really good when you can argue about the reason why you think your approach or your idea is better than the other idea. It's not just about the feeling, because what about feelings? You have to you have to be in the in the state where you can argue and where you can uh, bring the benefits to the table, where you can express it, where yeah, you can say, sure. look here, if we do it like this, we have this problem. And for that, and this is a problem that might bite us, and for that, I would propose this. And because I think this is beneficial because of that. Mm. And you have to be in that position, uh, in in that uh, in that state of, of 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 clarity in your mind about the problem to be able to really express what it is about and what are the benefits, what are the drawbacks of of all approaches on the table. And that really made me think because that's very often the the, the case. If as long as you don't have the possibility to express it, to to pour it into words in the discussion with the colleagues, then you don't have thought about yourself enough about it. Mm-hmm. And it's really important sure. to be to be forced to talk about it. Well, that's actually why I like conference talks, right? Because they force me to really think yeah, to of To doing things. conference talks. Yeah, to, yeah, doing, yeah. to think of things in detail yeah. that, that people believe me, right? <laughs> Not just yeah. uh, expressing gut feelings, but really getting some evidence for, for yeah. what you're thinking and what you're talking about. Because you need to do some research. Mm. You need to find out other people talked about this or had, had, had different opinions and why were they different and why do you think it's, it was not the right solution for, for a given problem, right? And that's, Absolutely. That's, that's true, yeah, for sure. That, that's, that mm. makes, I think that makes a good um, leader, uh, differentiates a good leader from, from a not so good leader, right? Mm. If you can convince the people that his ideas are good ones. Yeah. Yeah, I think after having discussed so much, we might have a little uh, kind of outlook. So this is now our seventh episode. Uh, half a year ago, we said we will at least do 12 episodes. And we, we the hosts of this podcast, are going to have some retrospective. We are talking about how we liked it, what your feedback was, what are the download numbers, what do we think, how it went, what do we want to change. So, dear listener, we would really appreciate your feedback and hearing of you be it positive or negative, to to bring it to the table as well and to think about if and how and in what what way we should and yeah, will continue. That's very true. I think we get a lot of feedback, but some are also just from a bubble, right? From the people we know, from, yeah. from, from, from some special area, from some special knowledge about yeah. software engineering. So it would be really interesting to see also others maybe we even don't, uh, never heard about or just... just Drop us an email if you don't want to make it public, you know. Absolutely. Or write us, write us on Twitter what you think about it. And Absolutely. So let's let's repeat. You can find us on developermelange.github.io and on devmelange on Twitter. And you can reach ourselves on, via emails. And or also direct messages on Twitter. So we're very keen on getting you. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Thank you very much. Okay, so I guess this was the seventh episode of Developer Melange.